my career early on got totally like upset because I met a band called the Grateful Dead. Have you ever wondered where the term mountain bike originated? Well, today our guest coined that term back in the late 70s and was one of the original pioneers of the sport of mountain biking. This is going to be an epic interview, so sit back and enjoy our chat with Gary Fisher. Okay, everyone, it is an absolute honor to have a living legend on our podcast today. Mr. Gary Fisher, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. I've been waiting for this. Thanks. Well, uh, man, I don't know where to start. I know we need to, to save some time for the good stuff, but I understand that you started racing bikes at the age of 12. Um, you are 72 years old, so this was you know a while ago. But what yeah. was the sport of cycling like back <laughs> when you first started? I mean, um, was, was it a cool thing to do or was it just one of those outlier sports that you just happened to be attracted to? It was a totally cool thing to do, but there were so few people. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, there was a, the ABL of A, which later became, you know, the Fed, you know, I mean, uh, what we got today, it's the same people essentially. And there were 120 members of it in Northern, Northern California. I mean, that was it, you know, and you'd see somebody on the road and you knew who they were, you know, like, and like everybody joined uh, the Federation, everybody showed up to at least one race. And there were people that did all the races. I did 30 races. The first year was like, I was 12 years old. It was like, and I went with the guys who were older than me, like we were 15 and 18, you know, that could drive. And we go to all these races and um, I had, there was this guy, Larry Walpole, and he, uh, formed a club, which I joined called the BBC. It was a Belmont bicycle club and he was a Pan American mechanic. Uh, and he lived in Belmont, California and, uh, hardcore. I mean, you know, he'd get the, the cyclies, you know, and get the, um, cycling weekly. And it was all like, he called me Gino Fisherino, you know, like after Gino Bartali and, um, my best fr you know, friend, a guy who was 18. Ray Andrews, you know, his hero was Fausto Coppi and skinny dude. And it was like, uh, at that period of time, I mean, I started in 62. It wasn't until 66 at the nationals, they had a road division. Okay. There was just track racing before that. I mean, for a period of time, it was just track racing. And there was this uh, TV program they did in LA of track racing in the mid fifties, every week, a weekly, cause they do all kinds of random sports and shit. Well, they got this and it got people going. And there became uh, guys like Bob Tetzloff. I mean, he was a hustler, you know, in a way, the way he raced the bike and how he'd show up the races and trick people into like towing them to, into the line and just like, you know, had a good sprint, he would win a bunch of races. It was just like really different, you know? And then came, um, the road renaissance happened in Northern and Southern California, you know, and it was guys, oh man, Lars Zabrowski, who was a frame builder, had the most bitchin' Volkswagen buses you ever saw and like went really fast in them and crazy stuff. And it was, um, it was hardcore, you know, and like we would ride, I'd ride 80 miles when I was like 12 and 13 and like, you know, Larry would make sure I'd make it, you know, and, um, it was crazy, you know, and race and I loved it, you know, and it, I raced for a long time so, you know, after that, but, um, oh God, I raced with, uh, Greg Lamont and Bob, his dad, when Greg was a punk teenager and it was so obvious that I didn't have it <laughs> that, um, I mean, I did, I mean, it was good. It was like, uh, I went to, uh, the training camp in Colorado Springs in 79 I stayed there for about three months. Eddie B didn't like me, you know, and it's like, forget it. I'm not going to be on a good team. I'm not going to be the leader. I'm not going to win. You know, it became the handwriting on the wall, you know, 
And then uh, Jimmy Carter said, well, we're not going because uh, we boycotted the Olympics then. And I said, okay, it's time, time to start the bike company. You know, forget this for now. I mean, I love racing. I love to race. I mean, I loved the whole thing. I still watch the races all the time religiously. And I just feel it all the time. I mean, it's nothing more fun to me in life than than being a road racer and doing all that crazy stuff. I mean, and you know, and all the stuff that goes on, I mean, it's so complex, you know, teams and all the strategies, the different strategies and different things that come up and the riders that come and go and everything. I love bike racing. <laughs> so, Gary, when you started, what was the equipment like? I mean, I'm sure you didn't have no. helmets back then. Like, no. did, did, did the cycling kit, the saddle, was it pure leather, um, steel oh, frames? Yeah. Did you use steel yeah. cranks? What was all that like when you started? Uh, I had uh, the very first crank set I had. Um, my first bike I had was a, a Legnano. It was a Magistroni. It's a cartered crank. A cartered crank you know? So you got to learn how to shape the cotters and... <laughs> do the whole thing and then uh, but the best was Campagnolo you know at the time and Campagnolo record and Campagnolo record was the same year after year after year you know it was like really everything was so the same you know and we had you know in the 60s uh there was Spence Wolf at Cupertino bike shop and uh, Peter Rich and those are the two uh, was, who was over in Berkeley he had Velosport and those are the two serious places you went to get a bike I mean There were other, a few other guys that were bike racers, like Oscar Jr. And, um, you know, on Stanion Street in San Francisco. He knew what he's doing, but he didn't have, you couldn't buy a bike from him, essentially. But these other guys, you know, I mean, um, Spence had Chinelli and had, um, you know, all the nice uh, Italian equipment. And, you know, Peter Rich had Bianchi and, you know, nice bikes, you know, and, and they both, and Peter Rich started, uh, you know, uh, sponsoring racers and everything and it's like the whole thing took off you know i mean 62 there were like you know 120 riders and by 66 there were a lot more and you know like four or five hundred and there was a whole racing scene on the road because man you didn't have to um do road closure you know and that's sort of what killed road racing uh, you know in the u.s right now is is strangling it like crazy it is just It's so expensive. That's what killed Tour California, you know, more than anything. It's just the flat-out expense, you know. But back in the 60s, there was barely anybody out there on, on those country roads, you know, really. I mean, it wasn't a big thing for people to go out and drive around those places. And, and uh, so you didn't have any expenses, you know. So there were uh, a lot of races, you know. It, was, it wasn't bad at all. But, man... Not the fields like they had at uh, the better races, you know. I mean, there'd be local races or there'd be like 20 guys that would be fast, you know, and everybody else, forget it, you know. And then you go to a national championships and it'd be 150 guys that were fairly fast, you know. And then it was a completely different thing, you know, uh, different sort of thing. So it was, it was um, the 60s were the renaissance of road racing in the United States. They brought it back again And um, my father took a lot of photos of it. And he was an architect, and his uh, firm was on Burlingame Avenue in Burlingame. And on that avenue was Tri-City Blueprint. And a good architect knows his blueprint guy really well. And um, uh, Bob Benares ran that place. And he and Peter Hoffman started a... Uh, magazine called Northern California Cycling Association Newsletter. Oh, my God. That eventually became Bicycling Magazine. And my dad did a whole bunch of photos, photo essays in that thing. And I, I inherited all that stuff, you know, just like I got 4,000 shots, black and white, all and a lot of them incredible. He was an incredible photographer, but that wasn't his gig. He had a, a major architectural firm in San Francisco, you know, for about 60 employees and everything. Shit, man, he go to the races, I go to the races, and I just got, I've been going through and scanning a lot of these old photos and everything of um, the scene back there. And it was, it, you know, people look at those photos and they look, they're amazed at even the motor vehicles, the stuff people are driving, 
because they're all a bunch of, you know, they were my heroes when I was a kid, you know, these, these bike racers. And they were <laughs> oddball, you know, absolutely, you know. And we would, like, be on rides and run into the Hells Angels. And they'd look at us, and we'd look at them, and they'd nod their heads, and we'd nod our heads. You know, it was like that. You know, they, like, connected. <laughs> you know, we were like outcasts of the road, you know, and all that. There was that element going on. You know, it wasn't, um, you know, <laughs> a big sport, you know, in the United States. Not until, um, you know, and that's what disappointed Greg. You know, he never got the publicity that Lance did. You know, and Greg was this like, you know, <laughs> Greg had three tragedies. He never had a team that worked for him, really. He got shot. And he didn't get the, he didn't get any of the press because that kid was incredible. I mean, he was like, just, you know, crazy man. And he pulled it off, you know, like, and that's, that's it, the, the drama is a thing. Like, Jens, you were a master of that stuff with the breakaway, you know, and the breakaways become more of a different thing. You, you help, you know, uh, like that style and everything, but now everything's different. You know, you throw out all the old rules, you know, it seems like everything's different, you know. But what kind of races were going on back then? Was it road races? Did you guys have stage races already? Were there like basically the hot dog circuit sort of time trials? I mean, were there uh, criterions? Oh, uh, there were crits. There were like, and there were like uh, local crits, just training crits. You know, those those that happened like Tuesday night, Thursday night. You have those races, and then there were actual good crits. You know, I mean, like tour in Nevada City. Well, that was killer. That course was amazing. I actually got to do that. That was. Did you do the old course or the I, new course? I um the probably the earliest far. I did it was like the early '90s, where it basically just went straight up the hill. You turn left and went like just barreling back you down. Do 180. You do a 180 at the bottom of the hill, right? Yeah, that's hard one. They they had one before you did. Uh, you made it left. Before that, and the course flew. I mean, you could run the big chain ring the whole way around. It was crazy fast, you know? And it was a really good race. I loved that race. I got second one year. I totally blew the sprint. I got like fourth. I got fifth. I got seventh. I, I was always a player at that race. That was like one of my favorites, you know? And the crowd was crazy, you know? It was, it was really good. That was a good race. There was crits like that, and then there were longer races but there weren't that many long races you know there were only a couple races that were over 100 miles every year a couple three races around there were a few stage races you know there's the original tour of california that uh, peter rich put on and there was another one about 10 years ago i only lasted one year tour of the sierras that was a good one five day stage race and um there was the Velta de Baja, and I did that a few times. And then came the Coors Classic. Oh, my God. You know, the Red Zinger and the Coors Classic. And that that was nuts because, like, we'd drive out there, and you cross the border into Colorado, and any gas station, convenience store, restaurant you stopped at, people were talking about it, you know? And they saw bikes on your thing, and they'd talk to you about it. And I'd get out of the thing, and it was like, it wasn't just in the sports, in the news. It was, it ran first in the news. They were talking about who won the stage, you know? And that was the kind of excitement that was raised for that thing. And it, it was, you know, unfortunately, it grew too fast, you know? And uh, um, it didn't, um, you know, it, it didn't translate well to California or Hawaii or any of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And San Francisco, I mean, holy Toledo. I mean, the guys there, uh, Mr. Weitzel and the group put together the race there, and it was gangbusters. And then um, the city just sort of like wanted a bunch of money, you know. And it's a really, really hard city to put any type of event on. You know, it's crazy. You know, and it went away, you know, and it hasn't been any type of, you know, the, the racing and – San Francisco is more like outlaw racing, you know, it's, it's about it. You know, there's it's a lot less of that and the crits and then there's gravel. I mean, oh my God, you know, like mountain bike became real mountain bike. Like you look at mountain bike, like in, uh, you know, 30 years ago, and it's sort of a lot of it's on gravel roads. 
and mountain bike became technical, you know, even across country became technical. You got to be able to be technical. So it left a big space, you know, between, um, I'm afraid to like get on the road these days. Cause that's the other part. It's cra- It's, it's difficult. You know, people have bad experiences with cars and cars are everywhere and, um, gravels, you know, you can do it. It's not hard to do, you know? So they're having this and it's really funny. The gravel guys I talked to, they're all like refuse to align with the UCI and refuse to align with the USA cycling. You know, <laughs> but before we start talking about gravel, yeah, yeah. I, I got to go back to the late seventies <laughs> yes. and I want to know about the crew of friends that you were hanging around with there in, in Northern California, um, because you are known as the person that coined the term mountain bike and you started your own company. Uh, Tom Ritchie, who was an ex-sponsor of mine, was, was building your bikes. Give us the 411 on that magical concoction of you guys getting together, seeing a hiking trail and saying, you know what? It'd be really cool to ride a bike up or down that. L- let's let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth here. I, that did, that's not the way it happened for me. You know, it's like like uh, Tom, I knew him through racing because, man, what a good rider that guy was. I mean, you know, and then I looked at his bikes and what he was building and, and uh, it's like, wow, he could do anything. And he's got an open mind. And the same, Yopes Brandt. We like Tom's mentor. I go on his ride sometimes and they were hardcore. You know, I loved them, you know, and we were like separated by about 60, 70 miles. And where I discovered the trail, because I'd been like when I was a kid, 1964, it's the first time I ride a cyclocross race. They had the cyclocross races over in Tilden Park in Berkeley. And it was really, you know, sort of an amusement in a way, but like people did it, you know, and put together bikes for it. I put together a bike for it when I was a kid. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was the first time I saw the balloon tire thing was in high school. I was a junior in high school and that was at uh, Redwood High in Larkspur. And it was a Larkspur Canyon gang. In a Larkspur Canyon gang, they said, hey man, they knew I was into bikes. You know, I rode my track bike to school one day, you know, and uh, like kid Robin, <laughs> he, uh, he rode around the parking lot and forgot it didn't, uh, freewheel went over the bars and had to have his spleen removed. Holy shit. Oh, no. But anyway, Lars Brickett, they knew I was into bikes. They said, Hey man, you got to check out the scene we got going on. So I'd done cross, but that was like, you know, you had to go out with, uh, tires over your shoulders because it was all kinds of rocks and stuff. You kill the tires right away. And at uh, Larkspur Canyon, those guys were into drum circles early on, conga drums, Casey Sonoban, this guy, you know, and then these things, they're going out into the woods on moonlit nights, you know, and doing like uh, taking a keg of beer. And they do a thing like when they ride with their clunker bikes around, you know, derby time. So the first hour is cocktail hour. So they're drinking beer. You're not supposed to spill your beer, you know, they had fun. So you'd go around in this big circle, you know, it's big. And, uh, you know, it gets into all such a random chaos. Anyway, that was like the Canyon gang. And then they were into seriously collecting old bikes, you know, and um, putting together old Schwins and stuff and running them downhill and racing downhill, going fast. And that's where I first saw it. So I was like, it was like uh, 1960, was like when did I graduate? 68. So it was 68, 67, where it was like that whole thing, you know, that was a thing. And so then like, I, I was like, it was like, I met Charlie Kelly and uh, he was a roadie for the Sons of Champlin. And I was living, well, at that time, I, my career Early on, got totally like upset because I met a band called the Grateful Dead, and that was at a uh, a race in 1966 August. Um, and man, they were horrible. And like like as far as like a band goes, like I couldn't believe it. Like I listened to old recordings from that time, and I go, 
God, I must have liked these guys because, man, this music is shit from this time. <laughs> but they practiced a lot. And they, I was really into, and it was really funny. Tom Pruce, who was a, a member of our club, the Belmont Bike Club, Pruce Pharmacy, they used to take LSD to Stanford University. He did right there. And that's where he met all the Grateful Dead people. And then he had him play at a bike race. And I went to the bike race and I met him. And it just like, fuck this. I went and joined the band. I mean, I joined the gang, you know, moved in the whole thing. I lived with them. And, you know, Jack Leary, Timothy's son, he was my best friend. We were the same age, you know, like the bear, uh, you know, Stanley, Owsley, you know, he, I would take care of him and his wives, his kids, the whole thing, you know, and this band of new writers. Anyway, the new writers had become popular and what happens when a band becomes popular, they get their own houses. So the communal house was going away. I needed a place to stay. And Charlie said, Hey, you can stay over here. And it was a, a house connected with a church. The church was a recording studio. Uh, Sons of Champlin recorded there and so did Huey Lewis and the news. You know, they did all their first big albums there and everything. And, you know, a few other bands were there all the time. And I moved in with Charlie and Charlie was a roadie and Charlie would go on the road and just a reliable as hell truck driver. And, you know, and it was a scene, you know, at Charlie's house because he was uh, had certain fees for the backstage passions, if you know what I mean, you know, so it was always going on there. And I, on the other hand, I got back into bike racing real seriously and I was going to the bike races. So at the time, I was training with a guy named Bill Clauston, who was really good for me to train with because he's really small. So you learn to get really, really low on the bike all day long, you know? <laughs> and we trained a lot together. And Laurie Schmidke, oh man, I did a lot of miles and did a lot of training. And then, and then Kent Bostick. And Kent Bostick was my roommate for a long time. And he wound up going to, I think, four Olympics, you know, Pursuiter. Uh, road racer, won the nationals on the road, I think oh, five times crazy, you know, and, and in a time trial. And that was my best bike racing, you know, because that was, and it was crazy. I mean, we'd combine with a couple of guys outside of our club because there was only like he and I from the club, you know, Vela Club Tamapias, which was our local little club that, that were in, that, that were, that had any cards to play, you know, at a race or, we're willing to like split prizes. I mean, that's sort of how it worked back then. You'd split prizes with people. People wonder, I mean, you know, and that's the thing that people don't talk about. It's like, God, man, you know, director sportives, they don't make deals with each other, do they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how could that be? Writers don't make deals. Oh, they don't. Oh, okay. Whatever you say. <laughs> so anyway gary anyway, when, when you are put, putting bikes back together like you old bikes yeah, you yeah. find at bike shops uh putting them back together racing downhill when did you realize this is a movement that could like go worldwide or was it just hey this is just a bunch of friends and me hanging out uh, racing down in the woods when did you realize hey this movement has potential to become actually huge yeah, yeah. At the start, the year after, or when did you realize, wow, this is actually pretty cool? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, before I started playing around, tinkering around for to make a better off-road bike, off-road thing, was uh, they had the gas war in uh, the U.S. You know, in 1973, bike sales went crazy. But um, the bike was wrong. That we had then because it was just like an imitation 10 speed you know it was a narrow narrow hard saddle narrow tires you know drop bars and the american people like they didn't adopt it that was a thing that was a big lesson i had had right in my head right about the time i started playing around with all this stuff it was like the american people don't like what i like i like a road racing bike with drop bars and yeah the bars are lower than the saddle and the saddle you know it's not wide no You know, and of course I'm riding, you know, hard, high pressure, narrow tires, and I take care of my equipment and everything. Yeah, that's not for the American people. The American people want this. And when I came to that realization, I'd been doing this thing, making bikes for my friends, you know, 
and putting together bikes. And I made one for a guy down the street who was a, he was a fireman in San Francisco, but he was out of shape. I mean, he was in his 40s, late 40s, and he was out of shape, definitely. And I thought to myself, it'll be just like the bike boom. They, ride, they get the bike, they ride it for three weeks, and then it winds up in the garage. No, no, I was wrong. He started coming out on all the rides, and there were a few other guys like that that weren't bike people at all, that never would ride a road bike, you know, don't want to deal with it and everything. And I suddenly realized it's like, wow, there is just all this incredible space out there that's accessible with this. And that's the thing. That was the thing that was going to make it. And, you know, that was going to really do the thing because it's all about, you know, the places you go, the people you'll meet, the good time that you have and everything. And when I saw people having such an outrageously good time, it was just like, click, this is it. This is going to be it. I knew it was going to be hot. And that was like in 75, you know, I knew that. But, yeah, I was being a bike racer. I wanted to go to the Tour de France. I wanted to do everything, you know, but – and that was my total dedication. So I was racing and training and going to places and trying to support myself. I worked in bike shops. I worked for Bicycling Magazine as a road tester. That was a good gig. I get free free equipment all the time, you know. And I met a lot of people in the industry, you know, during that time. And that was what I was doing, you know, um, with my time. You know, I really, I don't, you know. I didn't want to get seriously into it until I got seriously into it, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, I tried to make a bike. The first bikes that we made were really, um, they were sort of just like oversized road bikes, you know, and that they had fat tires and they had arp white bars. They had wide, as wide a range as we could find. And I, you know, that was the thing is I, I went to the Japanese and they came to me, those guys. Off. they all showed up on my doorstep, you know, like in 79, 80. I did a, um, 81, we did a presentation at the New York Bike Show on the whole thing. Uh, and it was a beautiful presentation, you know, incredible slides taken Colorado and California, Sierra Nevadas, the repack race, all this stuff. And that was Larry and Wendy Craig. Larry Craig is a steel guitarist for uh, Neil Young. <laughs> you know, and they were married and they came out on all the rides. It was, it was like, we we're so lucky in so many ways. You know, it's like, uh, I went to Japan and, and, uh, they took me in, you know, they just, I said, okay, I'm going to spill my guts and tell you everything I know about the sport and try to help you develop a product for it. In turn, I learned a lot. Oh my God. You know I mean? How things are made. Oh my God. You know, I mean, I was always into that as a kid, you know, my father, um, you know, how things are built, you know, oh my God, he was into that. You know, we always had a workshop, you know, we always had a dark room, you know, I made, uh, when I, when I was in my teens too, when I went to the Grateful Dead thing, I started making light show stuff. That was crazy. You know, I modified all this equipment and everything. Well, that's what I was going to ask was the equipment that you needed or the parts that you needed to create this new genre of cycling didn't exist when they were at the beginning. So was this just like trial and error experimentation or was this like some overall vision that you had in your mind that you eventually were able to mass produce and and change i mean i'm sure they didn't have like flat bars and you know the brakes and you know the big tires everything that a mountain bike encompasses i mean even the first year of uh specialized stump jumper the first year first year they had tomaselli brake levers we had magura you know it's like it was a big mix of stuff. We all were using TA crankset because they were the only ones making uh, you know, a triple chain ring that's super wide ratio and different crank lengths and all that sort of thing. It was nuts. I mean, uh, Bud Hafaker, the Hafaker brothers at Avocet, they helped me bring in uh, TA really early on, you know, and Magura, they jumped right in. I mean, they gave me a, a line of credit, a good size one, 
They didn't even know. They just like out of that New York show, you know, because they liked the message. They got it, you know. Neil Tadres, you know, Todd, you know, those guys, all kinds of French equipment and stuff. You know, that's where we're getting that, the Hey Ray Duo Par Derailleur. That thing worked, you know. And I brought all that, you know, I showed it all to the Japanese. It, I worked with them, you know, shit, man. It's like, I'm in the dude's book. I'm going to cry right now. It's crazy. You know, like the Shimano's, you know, it's like I brought them the whole thing. Same with, but I went to the other guys too. The Suntour side, Sugino, Mito, you know, Ishiwata, you know, um, oh God, Junzo Kawai. You know, he sent me, my first maker was Panasonic. Ah, wow. They were incredible, you know, and um, all those, uh, you know, like uh, Eska, oh, God, what's his name? BMC. What's our guy, the um, head guy there who used to race for me? <laughs> I got him a Kinagawa frame. Raced on a mountain bike. Come on, I had all kinds of ringers, man. I just I had a brain for it. But he's still around, you know, like the mountain bike side, you know, people went out into it. It was a lot of fun, you know, as far as like the racing and everything. It's crazy. It's still a lot of fun. And that's what drives it, you know, really health and, um, and happiness. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton magazine, exclusive membership content, from bellenews.com access all the premium content from the whole outside family including yoga journal backpacker ski outside magazine and many others and that's not all there are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events access to gaia gps and trail forks as well as virtual health and fitness courses it's 350 dollars of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Gary. So, uh, Gary, uh, you also had a, a big part in developing um, full suspension mountain bikes, don't you? Where and how did that come along? And, and like, um, I mean, you not only went in the mountain bike, you had a lead role in the um, developing or introduction of full suspension. You were involved with the 29er movement. Um, these things, you just come to your mind when you wake up and have your coffee Or you think, what could I do better? Like, how did you come up with these ideas? Well, now there are people. You know, there are people like Mert Lowell. He's a local guy. He's, he walks into a place and he's totally famous, you know, from uh, doing suspension and things uh, on any Sunday. See that movie. You know, it's like he walks in and it's like, hey, we went to Japan seven times together, you know, to work on our first you know, full suspension bike and Paul Turner, you know, the other guy, rock shock. Like he sent me all these different fork crowns, you know, and like I was the first OE to use rock shock and my own sales guys were saying, this is stupid, man. Don't put this on the bike. You know? And then six months later, they're super happy. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I tend to do things when nobody asked for it. You know, the 29er was that way. Oh my goodness gracious. You know, that too, I went to the UCI, you know, that, in uh, 2000, because they need, there was a rule they had that said uh, the wheel cannot only be can be only 26 inches. It can't be any bigger. And so that was going to kill the bike, you know. And I went there. And I, uh, I went into Hein Verbuggen's office, just he and I. I you know, told him, <laughs> I, you know, it's great. Get along really well. You know, I told him, you got to get into BMX more. BMX, because right now, I mean, All the federations are a crazy mess, you know? Now's the time, you know, because that's a great sport. Anyway, then I go to the committee meeting with the technical committee, and I say, look, you know, you can't be, uh, you know, roadside. You have a really good idea of what a road bike is and why and everything. And I agree that you have the regulations, but mountain bike, you can't have these regulations. The thing is not evolved. You know, we have just started with 
And in fact, that I found that this bike, uh, I've had it for the last few years, but this wheel size is, you know, a few percent faster and it's safer. And there's no way you can stop something like this. And they said, well, we're really concerned that there'll be guys getting in races with cyclocross bikes, you know, if you let 700C in. I said, well, pff, make the courses real mountain bike courses. You won't have that problem at all. And they, you know, at first they put it to a vote of all the teams. And of course, the Fisher team wanted to have it. The Trek team, no. And the majority of teams, no, because they were looking at, we'll have to bring a fleet of 29ers and a fleet of 26. That's what they were thinking, you know. And um, <laughs> uh, despite that, they, I think they agreed with me, you know, that it, they, they said, okay, we're going to do it. And they changed the courses too. So you see the courses have become more technical, you know, overall. You know, it's I mean, really, especially at the World Cup level. So they haven't. It hasn't been an issue about somebody bringing in a big skinny tire, 33 millimeter tire or something, you know, it's but, not an issue. But all those innovations, something as, you know, you've mentioned the rock shock, full suspension, yeah. Um, yeah. the 29er compared to the 26 or the 27.5. What is your favorite intervention and intervention and what is perhaps the intervention that you wish wouldn't have stuck uh well i mean you know overall for the sport i mean it's the the trail there's so many great builders i mean stuff is so much fun to ride and we used to find uh found trails and some of them were horrible just because they weren't made for mountain bikers they weren't they weren't fun you know at all so i i think that's a huge thing. And then, of course, you know, the last few years, I mean, there's been so much innovation in the mountain bike market. Uh, people are not afraid. So that is my favorite thing is people aren't afraid to play around with it. And they're willing. They're still willing because uh, they build this equipment and then they find even new ways to ride and everything. And I'll tell you, I used to say all the time, the act of riding a bicycle has not been thoroughly defined. You know what? I'm into defining it, I think, now. I think it's going to happen. I'm thinking crazy thoughts, and I've got cra I'm, I'm hooking up with some really crazy people that are really, uh, you know, there are some really good designers, for one. You know, I went to Eurobike, and I'm, no longer, I'm not working with track any longer. I'm sort of on my own. And that's sort of great right now because uh, I've got some some crazy ideas. <laughs> I got to make a bike that can ride, steer itself. <laughs> Do you it's have a crazy. bike that yeah. will keep you from crashing? Because I recently well, did a too. mountain bike stage race, and I wish I would have had one of those. So what what happened? Tell me. Well, Tell you me. you mentioned something about yeah. your favorite trails or trails being fun. Yeah. I'm, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on what makes a, a trail fun. For me, uh, it's a nice, flowy, yeah. non-technical thing. But what I saw were wet roots going across the trail, rock drop-offs that, you know, I'm 50 now that if I fall off, I'm going to hurt myself. Right, but, right. you know, what makes a good trail, in your opinion? Because I totally agree with you. I don't want to really take any risks anymore but i want to be out there experiencing the innovation that that the mountain bike industry is is moving towards let alone right. your crazy ideas that i i hope you can share with us well it's um you know it's all about having a challenge and a chance right I like you it. know when you when uh, i mean that's what it's all about i mean and you got to work work with yourself you go to something where you can't function like, forget about it. You know, you're not going to progress. It's got to be, you know, a little out of your comfort zone, but not too much, right? And not all the time, not constantly. Ah, unless you, you're into it, you know, three-hour period of that or whatever. You know, so this it's, it's the thing of like, no, the trails aren't going to all be built the same, you know. But there are, I mean, there are things like you look at like uh, the riders in the downhill, saying oh we think we want to use unionize because we think some of this stuff is so sketch and they're right man 
you know, as far as like, there's, there's a difference. There's stuff that like, I mean, it'll take you down, but the stuff that like, it's just too narrow, too random, too much. Yeah. And, um, no, it's, you got to go to where you, you want to go, you know, with this. And that's why the gravel thing, wow. All of a sudden that whole thing opened up. It's great. So there are, you know, you got to know it's bet it's easier and easier to find out what you're in for and the real technical stuff. It's, uh, it's not everywhere. There's some places where, you know, you still ride a mountain bike race. It's not that technical. And it's not the technical isn't what's going to like make or break, but I know what you mean. There are some races I've been at where like, wow, man, this is real mountain biking through and through. You know, it's hardcore. But as far as like a lot of people at the show, there are three different people. Bosch is the biggest one too. And, um, um, ABS, you know, anti lockup breaks. So they're doing that for, um, certain things, but I'm thinking just even, things of just simplifying the bike because right now i mean even at, uh like we went to the one bike and that was a great thing of like simplifying everything getting rid of the front derailleur and you know one more level lever you got to deal with and everything but uh, the suspension is getting into that thing where it can adjust itself more and more and everybody's getting into electronic expansion suspension so that's going to change and then the dropper post and all that so what do you think on the roadside, man? Do you think the, like everybody, you know, like the dropper post, like uh, all that stuff, all that craziness. That was something. <laughs> like I was impressed. Well, and he won one of the biggest races with this, with using the dropper yeah. post, right? So he put I it, know. he used it right in the moment he needed it. He didn't tell anybody really before. He surprised everyone. It was a genius move, really, must say. But in road racing, uh, Gary, I don't think we have too many chances, too many places where you really can benefit from it, I guess. So there might be special occasions for it. But talking about technical in innovations, um, earlier this year for Paris-Roubaix, there was rumors that uh, Team um, DSM, was it? They were having something to reduce and pump up the air pressure again. Like all built in within the bike. So they, in the end, they didn't use it. But do you think that has a future also in mountain biking? That if you have a like a, a part of the circuit with like more like a rough surface or a smooth surface that you can increase the tire pressure so you could ride faster and then reduce it again. Do you think that has a future in mountain biking or in road cycling? No, I think, I think so. But it's the old thing of like... Um What weight penalty do you, do you, are you accepting? And the place where it's really going to be accepted first will be the e-bike because that's where the weight penalty people, they discount it quite a bit. You know, you see all kinds of stuff coming into that, uh, that style of bike. And <laughs> that's the bigger market anyway. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So I maybe not in racing, not for a while. You know, because it's the thing that's improved quite a bit is that the, you can run a really, a really good quality tires. You can run it really low pressure and on the road and the resistance isn't bad. It's not that huge, right? I mean, how much difference is there in the resistance with the setup, you know, for the road versus, you know, cobbles and things. So that's for cobbles, right? Just to get over cobbles, which makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you've mentioned it before and i i really want to get your take on it so you've lived through the genesis and ongoing development in the world of mountain biking and now there's the gravel world which is a nice little combination between the two i think a lot more people are feeling safe about getting off of the busy roads out on an unpaved surface getting a little bit of that outdoor adventure thing but What is your take on the pop popularity of, of gravel cycling these days? And do you see any similarities between gravel and mountain bike when it started? Well, yeah, I mean, they're like 90s mountain bikes, <laughs> you know, no suspension. <laughs> it's sort of like that. It's simple. You know, it's and that's the funny thing. My uh, my oldest son, he's got a hipster bar in L.A., El Prado, and he uh, he's got a bike race team. <laughs> It's sort of a um, 
parody on itself. They go out and uh, ride '90s bikes, and they go out and ride uh, stuff that's fun. And they've got it's they've got a really good social media guy. Um, he does uh, vans and his uh, day job and everything. <laughs> Check it out. You know, it crack you up. You know, and it's sort of a, there are other clubs like that, and it's sort of a thing these days. It's like people are like, you know, four hundred bucks, six hundred bucks. You can buy a lot of really good metallurgy. You can buy an old used uh, '90s bike. So that's a trend there that's different from the serious gravel thing. But the serious gravel thing, like I see it all the time around here. I mean, uh, the urban areas, you don't have that much space. <laughs> people say not another bike you say oh wait this one will do everything so you just get another set of wheels for the road you know <laughs> you know it's and you get your serious gravel wheels and everything and it's a very practical bike you know it's it's not slow at all when you put a set of uh, serious road wheels on it they're fast little bikes you know so it's a good bike to have and then um, people have got all these compartments and stuff and just going out and <laughs> It's the best, you know, it, it's got a lot it, it, that was always there in mountain bike. You know, there was rip, tear, shred, adrenaline. And then the other side was like, I rode the whole way, man. I did all these passes. I did all this stuff and it still exists in mountain bike, you know, but you know, as we said before, I mean, people don't necessarily want to do all that technical stuff. I'm with you, you know, right now, personally, I mean, I don't want every trail dumbed down for me okay and thankfully we got oodles of trail builders building in their own ways you know and it's amazing the work they do because they're using uh, proper mathematics to figure out you know <laughs> the radiuses and how the things go you know uh and those guys are the ones that i'm trying to get to, to build more features in our cities you know and bring it in i mean it's where uh Nika has sort of failed they haven't reached the inner city kids. And what are the kids in now, into now, you know, is the ride outs. You check that out, doing wheelies and stuff. SE Bicycles owns it. You know, they, they totally, you know, communicate with the kids. And uh, they build the bikes they want and everything. It's something. It's a phenomena. And I want to uh, I'm trying to get involved more with my old friends at uh, Nike and try to, like, turn that thing around, you know, because it's become... You know, it's it's a cool thing in so many ways, but it's the, you know, it's for kids that uh, can expend an over, uh, can afford to have an overnighter, you know, and that's a problem because there are a lot more kids that uh, need to ride a bike because it's going to make them healthier and more settled when they get to school and they'll study better. And the whole ethos of Nike is a correct way that like, hey, do well. You know, and that means do well academically as well as uh, on your bike and everything. So, um, yeah, it's time for change. <laughs> Talking time for change, Gary. Uh, mountain biking. Before it was just mountain bike racing. Now we got, you know, downhill, uh, shorter, longer distance, uh, across country and so on. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Is it going the right direction? Is the sport growing too fast or too big? Or you like it to be, hey, look, I just want mountain bike racing. That's it. We don't need more. Or you think it's a good idea that you have different disciplines within the discipline of mountain biking? Yeah, this last week we had uh, Crankworks. And that was huge. And up in Whistler and everything. Um, and they play around with different contests and everything. And, you know, um, Red Bull had the downhill, the cross country and everything for the World Cup, but that's been disturbed now, you know, and people are wondering what's going to happen, you know, and, and so they're starting to put more energy, more cookies into the basket of, you know, these alternatives to the traditional downhill, traditional the Olympic cross country and all that. So it's a really fertile time for any of these new events. And man, they were good. I mean, I watched the streaming. It was good stuff, you know, so It's amazing. You get Red Bull, you get Discovery fighting over these athletes. <laughs> I'm hoping some good things could come. You know, and people are really afraid right now. And in a way, that's a good way. Maybe they can have a union. I don't think I've never seen a union work in the cycling world. Um, maybe it can work for, you know, the, 
downhillers, you know, and they could all stick together and everything. I mean, it's, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> That's one thing. Well, Gary, I have one last question because you've probably forgotten more about cycling than I ever have known. Um, obviously an avid, you know, track racer, road racer, you live through the whole mountain bike and now the gravel. What is your solution, the Gary Fisher solution to increasing the popularity of cycling in general here in, in the U.S.? In the U.S., yeah. It's a hard one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the overall, you know, for it. I, there's so many areas that are positive, you know, um, can be positive, and I'm just going to work on those. You know, they, you can get so negative about everything, and I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there at all. You know, it just doesn't serve anything. Um, but, um no, I'm, I'm more into like, uh, getting the kids out, you know, and that sort of thing. You know, I think it's the way to start everything and to make things better for them. I got, I got six kids of my own and my 14 year old is just crazy mountain biker, loves it and is into the tech. Oh my goodness. I love talking to that kid. He's 14, you know? And he just, he's way into it. And I want to make a better world for all of them because all six of them, you know, pedal, you know, and use the bike and believe in it, you know, in their own ways and everything. And it's, 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 it's touched every one of them, but I want to be able to share that with a lot more. And it's hard. I mean, you know, the bike industry itself is, oh man, uh, we may have a huge back lash of back orders of like of um, over inventory. Everybody's holding the bag right now. And so there's going to be some serious discounting going on in the next few months, and it's not going to be pretty, you know, the money will be lost. At the same time, there's big, big money coming into it. It comes from the automotive industry. Uh, I was at Eurobike, and everybody and their brother was talking about, yeah, well, we just got bought by these guys, those guys, you know, and man, we like the resource. They like the money. They like what they can do things professionally. You know, it's just like, you know, the bike wholesale industry uh, traditionally has spent like 5% of uh, sales on marketing. And these other industries spend double, triple, quadruple that, you know. Uh, and they're real serious players. And um, we don't get respect in Washington, D.C. because we don't pony up, if you know what I mean. You know, we go there and we make noise and they meet us. But man, at the end of the day, we're not playing the game. And the same goes for, you know, major media. You know, we're the, one of the top five icons of the good life is somebody on a bicycle. It's used in Madison Avenue, you know, for many decades. Problem is we don't control the message, you know, and we don't control what the news guys say, do all that, you know. So that's a big thing. You know, that's a huge uh, change that's come, you know, and uh, we're used to the 800-pound gorillas. I mean, Trek specialized in giant and man, they're 8,000 pound gorillas starting to enter the market and change things. And then you have things like there are three new makers of derailers because hmm, a lot of the good derailer patents are running out. <laughs> you know, there's new people, you know, in every aspect of bicycles right now taking it seriously. And I've never seen that before. I mean, when I first started going to a bike show in the USA, it was like tiny. You could see everything in the show in like an hour, you know, and talk to everybody there in one day. That was it. You know, it was tiny, you know, and it's grown like crazy, you know, the whole thing, all the different specialties and what's going on. I mean, it's in, uh, in ways that we didn't think would work before are working. It's like, uh, like rad power. Those guys, it's like, a, you go down to the, you know, our local park down here with the kids and everything. I got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And uh, the mothers compare uh, cargo bikes now. <laughs> and, and then there's like seven to 14-year-old um, year old kids on electric scooters. You know, that's meant for a 220-pound adult. Well, you know, a 50-pound kid can go up any hill Flying. around here. 
no problem, man. And the brakes are good. And they got a long wheelbase. They got uh, pneumatic tires and everything. And I talked to the chief of police and I said, hey, man, what about this? He says, oh, shit, man. If I start cracking down on these kids, the mothers will get mad at me. And it's like this. It's like, this is all over the place. And that and dog walkers. Oh, man. And walkers. We never have walkers around here before. We got walkers all the time and not going away. And it's the old people. Yeah, it's really funny. And the number of dog walkers, e-scooters, e-bikes, and kids um, has gone way up. And the number of accidents haven't gone up correspondingly. And it's because the, the scooters, I want to point out, they're, you know, they're regular, they go 14 miles an hour. That's the top speed, right? It's a heavy regulated thing. And the scooters, like the ones, or the e-bikes, they'll do like... Um, uh, the ones that look like little scooters and man, these kids, be, they're on their way to school. They're on their way home. And they just like what used to be a trip for mom, you know, and in the, in the SUV and everything the kids are doing now. So the moms are totally into it and they go pick up, you go pick up, you know, three kids and their scooters. No problem. Just pop them in the back of the SUV. So that's a major change that's happened here and it's happening in, in suburbia. You know, it's really funny and not everywhere though, you know, but, but in some places, it's happening like crazy, especially with kids. Kids are starting to do that, and uh, and you know that there haven't been they haven't been filling the hospitals because my doctor wife would tell me, you know that. I mean, she'd tell me, you know, they haven't been at the ER room like crazy. My doctor wife would tell me, oh, she would tell me, you know. <laughs> she tells me a lot. <laughs> it's good, you know, but uh, yeah. Mm. So. It so that's a new thing, a lot of change. Go ahead. Gary, uh, to get more kids on the bike, would you think it makes sense? We had Tony Hawk before as a guest. He said, uh, I built uh -huh. inner city skate parks. They are relatively right. small. You can always find a spot for them. But you think we uh -huh. would need indoor BMX tracks, cycling tracks, or like a shorter MTB lap, like a mountain bike lap that kids would be safe away from traffic somewhere in the city, in a city park. Would that get more suburban kids involved in the sport? Well, or how, how do you think we can reach these kids? It's um, it's a really good question. You know, I, you mean, Tony Hawk's right. You know, um, I mean, pump tracks is one thing that's fairly obvious. But, you know, it's more a thing like you got to go to them and ask them and watch them. And, you know, you can introduce things and say, hey, what up? You know, what do you think of this? What's going on, you know? And learn there. It's like, I, I'm not gonna be so bold to say, hey, this will work for sure, because I don't know yet, you know? But I know it's like, like what Tony's talking about, skate parks, yeah. It's like, I've, I've always talked about, you know, we gotta have a park. Well, you do that version, Ray's Indoor Mountain Bike Park. That's been going on for the last 20 years in, you know, in Cleveland, Ohio. And it's all made out of wood and everything. And they build different types of features. He knows a lot more than I do of what you, you know, and his specialty is taking people in off of the street, all kinds of people and having a good time. You know, nobody killing each other in, in different disciplines. But all that, that, you know, what Tony's talking about, you know, skaters, you know, bikers, we're all in the same group. It's facilities for all of us. You know, it's stuff that's fun to do and takes some skill and has, you know, varying degrees of challenge because you always got to present a challenge and a chance for your kids because that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, in, in, you know, in bringing up kids, it's we that's how we can do our best. And we know that the physical stuff is just as important as all the all the information that we give them, you know, all, all the uh, oh God, all the books and everything. You know, we, we know that the physicality, you know, affects everything, you know, and that, uh, and that our emotions and the whole thing are just can come under control with using the physical, <laughs> you know, the amount of focus that you get to do all these tricks and do these things. You know, it's like, like I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm in your boat, you know, I can't do this stuff anymore. I don't want to break bones or do things like that, but man, I'm going to push my edge all the time. And That's that's what you need to keep doing. And it's the old thing, use it or lose it, man. <laughs> you know? I want to stay as functional as I can or as long as I can, you know. So Well, Gary, <clears throat> this is this has been an eye-opening, inspiring. I'm definitely gonna steal that quote, um, challenge and a chance and uh put that out into the ethers. 
But thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Um, it, it's been enlightening, and I wish we could go a little bit longer. So we're going to have to ask you back in the, in the near future because there's just so much more that we can unpack. But thank you again for Yen, from Jens and I for, for coming on our podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I admire you guys. <laughs> no end. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Gary for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bellow News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens, and please share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>